turn to the Gospels, John's Gospel in particular tonight, and we want to go to John chapter 17, John's Gospel, 17th chapter. This, of course, is Christ's great prayer for his church. Wonderful prayer. If you want to know the heartbeat of Jesus, read this prayer. This is what he was praying. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. That your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have finished, sorry, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. And have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition." that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me. I have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they whom you give me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. The world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you have sent me. And I have declared to them your name. And will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. So this is Christ's wonderful, passionate, 
poignant prayer for his church, for us as the church of Christ on earth. Here he was soon to complete his mission on earth. He would leave his disciples. He would go back to the Father. He would no longer be physically or visibly with them in the flesh. He is looking now beyond the cross. He's looking beyond the resurrection. He's even looking beyond the ascension. And actually, he's looking way beyond even Pentecost. In fact, he's looking all down through the centuries at his church, right from its inception <coughs> unto its completion. And he saw the explosive growth of his church from those first few thousand on the day of Pentecost until the untold millions even unto today. Right now, there's a tremendous explosion of Christianity in places like Africa and China and South Korea, places like South America and Indonesia and many Asian countries. God is moving wonderfully. And all this means that the church is actually the fastest growing, biggest religious, if I can use that term, movement on the face of the planet, far outstripping all others, including Islam. And Christ was able to see all of that. Of course, he saw its struggles with persecution from the outside and with heresies and false teachers that were wrecking havoc on the inside. He saw its joys, he saw its pains, he saw its successes, he saw its failures, he saw all of that and more. But one thing stands out in this great prayer for his church. This is his desire for the church above all else. Now, we told you this morning in the message this morning about adoption, about God's personal desire for your life personally, individually. But this is Christ's great desire for his whole church corporately together as a body of people. In fact, he prayed for it five times in that one prayer. Now, the fact that he repeated it over and over and over and over again tells us that was the passion of his heart in this particular prayer. What was it? The unity of his church. The unity of of his church. That's his desire. That's his joy. That's his delight. I'm not speaking here of economism. I'm not speaking about some great worldwide superstructure, some great super denomination where one size fits all. I'm not talking here about some ecclesiastical, monolithic kind of ecumenical monstrosity. And that's a perversion of what the true church really is. It's an imitation of what the true church is. It's a counterfeit. Paul says it has a form of godliness, but it denies the very power of it. And it's not saving one single soul. And it'll take men to hell. And so the unity of the church is Christ's prayer. This is what he desires. Now, the unity of the church is not found in its structure. It's found in its spirit. Unity it's not the absence of diversity. Isn't it great that we're not all clones? Isn't that good? I'm not, not talking about us just as individuals. I'm talking about churches. Some people, there's a problem. That, why are there so many different types of churches? Well, thank God there's such variety. God is a God of variety. 
As long as there's certain foundational truths that we hold to, biblical truths, that's wonderful. If we believe that the blood of Christ saves us, we believe in the virgin birth, we believe in the resurrection, there's certain truths. Now we can argue about the second coming to we're blue in the face, but there's certain truths that are cardinal truths. And that holds us together as the great church around the world with all of its variety and all of its diversity. Neither is unity maintained at the expense of truth. So what do you mean? Well, remember the Apostle Paul, <laughs> Peter. There's one point Peter, he was kind of backing off the liberty that he had in the gospel because he was a little bit frightened of, 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 of some who was coming from Jerusalem because he was mixing with the Gentiles and he was eating with them and having food with them. And then when he heard they were coming, he was backing off. And Paul says, I was stood unto his face. Paul says, I challenged him. This is not right. Stand fast in the liberty that God has given you. And so unity is not maintained at the expense of truth. So how is it possible then to have unity when there is such diversity? And there is such diversity, diversity of worship. We have everything from happy clappy to smells and bells, haven't we? And every shade and color in between. Everything from hell songs to the gathers. And that's just in here, by the way. So there's all kinds of styles and forms of worship. There's people perhaps would come into our church and it would drive them nuts. There's places we might go and we think, ah, there's only life in this song at all. But it's just a different style. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It may be different, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. You know, because there's a pipe organ doesn't mean that's wrong. It's just different. And if we can worship God with a pipe organ, that's wonderful. If we can worship God with drums, that's wonderful. It's just different. And there's such diversity of worship. There's such diversity of emphasis within the body of Christ. You know, lots of our denominational tags comes through emphasis, doesn't it? Presbyterians believe in the presbytery. They have a, an eldership. Congregational church believes in the rule of the congregation in the church. The Baptists, there's an emphasis on adult water baptism. Pentecostals on Pentecost, the Spirit. Methodists, from the methodology of John Wesley and so forth. And so there's different emphasis sometimes placed within different church uh, gatherings and different church denominations and different church fellowships. And it's no good saying, well, uh, we're not traditional. We all have our traditions. All of us have our traditions. They're just different. But as long as they're God-honoring, that's fine. As, as long as they bless the Lord, it doesn't matter. God doesn't mind traditions as long as it's not taken away from the gospel and taken away from uh, from his presence, but if it adds to it, that's fine with God. There's diversity in culture. Church in India is very different than the church in South America. The church in America is very different than the church in Russia. Church here is different than the church in Ukraine. Why? Because we bring our culture into it. Now, if you live in a very hot climate, you would think well, if you live in Southern California, most Californians go to church and they go very relaxed and very relaxed dress and open-neck shirts. And you go to Africa, it's an equally hot country, if not hotter, and boy, they dress up in suits and ties. 
go to India, they dress up in suits and ties. It's a cultural thing. It doesn't make them more spiritual or less spiritual if you, if you do or you don't. It's a cultural thing. And we all have cultural things that we bring into, into our worship and into our church life. And that's okay if it doesn't take away from the things of God. And so Christ prayed for this multi-racial, multi-cultured, many-membered, multi-gifted church that we would be as one in Him. That is His great prayer. Now, how do we become one in Christ? How do we do that? Well, let me tell you right away that we are already one in Christ. I'll come back to this in a moment, but by way of explanation, but we are already one in Christ. Now, here is a, a lesson of uh, diversity and uni unity. Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So there's great unity, isn't it? But then he talks about diversity now. But each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we be no longer children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking truth, the truth and love may grow up in him into all things who is the head, Christ, from, the whole, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What diversity within the body of Christ. There is the fivefold ministry for a start. You go to 1 Corinthians 12s for other gifts. There's other scriptures, people, people being gifts and people having gifts. What diversity and yet what unity that Christ longs for within his body. So here we are, family, brothers and sisters, same Father God, all branches of the same vine, all sheep of the same pasture, all been to the same cross, all washed in the same blood, all saved from the same hell, all going to the same heaven. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or free, all one in Christ. That's the heart of the Lord. That's what he's praying for. Amen. And so, 
Second thing, realize that you alone do not have the monopoly on truth or on the spirit or on love. You alone do not have the monopoly on truth or of the spirit or of love. We can all learn from each other. There's a tendency within all of our groupings to think that beyond our group, it's a bit dodgy. <laughs> that those ones over there are very different, you know. Well, they may be. You ever notice how God blesses people that are very different than you? Do you ever notice that? He's a habit of doing that. Because we don't have the monopoly in any of these things. We really don't. And oftentimes, whether it's denominations or whether it's groups, oftentimes that we get on one another's case and try to divide each other with the differences. There's an old joke, you may have heard of it. It's about two Baptists. Now, these are American Baptists. American Baptists uh, has got a lot of diversity within their denominations. They're just not all the one. They're different strains and streams of them. And there's an old joke, if I can just read it to you. It's called The Heretic. I was walking across a bridge one day and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. So I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he said. I said, well, there's so much to live for. He said, like what? I said, well, are you religious or atheist? He said, religious. I said, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? He said, Christian. And I said, me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? He said, Baptist. I said, why? Me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? He said, Baptist Church of God. I said, me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God? Are you the Reformed Baptist Church of God? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God. And I said, me too. Are you the Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1879? <laughs> or the Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915. I said, die, heretic scum, and pushed him over the bridge. <laughs> I know that's an old joke, but... <laughs> and it doesn't just apply to American Baptists either. We do not alone have all the monopoly on truth. There's people who think very differently than us. They have very different views, for instance, on the second coming of Christ. Uh, some of my uh, pastor friends, dear friends, have very different views than I've got. But I don't have all the monopoly on truth, and neither do they. I said earlier, there's cardinal truths that all of us believe in. But there's other things. When is Christ coming? Do we know for sure? No, we don't know for sure. We do see signs. And you can argue and you're blue in the face about when exactly he's going to come, but we don't know. That's the truth of it. So we're not going to fall out over that one. Sure we're not. Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18. Sorry, Ephesians 2 verse, yeah, verse 18. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you're no longer strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Next chapter, chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. In chapter 4, I'll ask a couple of verses there, verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. There's an interesting little passage in, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. In verse 38 and 39. Now John answering him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. He doesn't follow us, so we forbid him. <laughs> that was quite arrogant and prideful, wasn't it? And Jesus corrected that attitude, didn't he? He says he's not against us, he's actually for us. So don't forbid him. So realize that we do not have the monopoly in truth or the Spirit, or on love. And thirdly, realize that love can make us one. You say, well, what do we meant, David? You said at the start that we already one. Well, we, we are one positionally, but we're not one practically. We're one by virtue of our position in Christ because we're part of his body, which is one but in practice, we have to work hard at it, don't we? And we're not fully there yet. Sure, we're not. 
I mean, if we fall out with each other even in here, and trust me, that has happened over the years, all right? So let's not look too holy. It can happen. <laughs> it really can. How much more around the whole body of Christ? We have to really work at this, don't we? Why? Because there's things about each other's personality, never mind anything else, that sometimes we have to deal with, isn't it? We have to deal with our own, we have to handle others. It's just the way that it is, isn't it? And so we have to work at this in a practical way. But our love for Christ and the love of Christ can make us one in practice. If we love Christ and his love is in us, John 17, 26, that the love which you, with which you love me may be in them and I in them. That the love with which you love me may be in them. So in other words, the same love, he's praying that the same love that the Father loved him with, that we love each other with. That's a big, big standard, isn't it? That takes you to 1 Corinthians 13. But that's what it takes often to have unity in the body of Christ. I said earlier that unity must not be maintained at the expense of truth, but neither can truth be maintained at the expense of love. You see, truth without love becomes legalism. It becomes formalism. It becomes dead letter. The Pharisees had all of the truth you could wish to have. They were the keepers of the law. They knew the law minutely, but they had no love. They operated out of the law, but it was without love, and it became dead letter, legalism, formalism. And the trouble is, we as Christians, if we haven't got love, we may have all the truth, we may know all of the doctrines, we may be steeped in all of the doctrines, but if we don't have love, it becomes legalism and formalism. And it's not going to help anybody. And that's the difference. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1-3 tells us that if we do not have love, we're clanging cymbals. We're just a big banging bell, aren't we, if we don't have love. We make a lot of noise. We say a lot of things. But the bottom line is, if there's no love in it, it's not going to reach anybody, is it? Ephesians 4 says, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things, into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying or the building up of itself in love. There's the key, isn't it? John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. This is my commandment, Jesus said in John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 1 Peter 1, 22, love one another with a pure heart fervently. Romans 13 and 8, owe no man anything but to love one another. So whether it's Paul speaking, John speaking, Peter speaking, Jesus speaking, the bottom line is, is love. That's what keeps us in unity. 
love. What happens whenever we are united in love? Two things. And Jesus said these two things in his prayer. The world will believe that Christ is sent by God. In verse 21 of John 17 in his great prayer, listen to what he says, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That the world may believe that you sent me. Now, isn't that strange the way he put that? Notice here what he says. That they also may be one. There's unity in us. That the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, if we're not one, if we're not in unity, if we're not walking in love towards each other, the world won't listen to us. The world will think we're a bunch of hypocrites, won't it? And I'll say this Christianity is a sham. It doesn't work. Look at them. They can't even like each other, never mean love each other. That's what the world will say. And then they'll not believe that Jesus was sent. They don't even want to go near Jesus because they say, well, if that's Christians for you, I want not. How many times have you heard that? If that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. And oftentimes that's because we're not showing the love of God. So Jesus said, if we walk in unity and we walk in love, the world will start to believe that he has been sent by God. Secondly, the world will believe that we are sent by Christ. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You can say I'm a Christian to your blue in the face, but if you hate each other, the world won't believe it because the world knows better than that. They know better than that. They're not, they, they, their expectation of Christianity is higher than that, so they just won't believe it. You can talk all you like, but they just won't believe it. The world believes that we are sent by Christ whenever we walk in unity and we love one another. And finally, the unified church sees the glorified Christ. The unified church sees the glorified Christ. Father, I desire that they also whom you give me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The unified church sees the glorified Christ. Christ wants us to be united in love so that we may see his glory that he had with the Father before the world began. You know, if you read through that prayer slowly, deliberately, consciously, and think what was Jesus really praying for? He was really praying that we'd be united, that we would walk in love, and that we would see him in his glory. If we're not united and we're not walking in love, we've got to ask the question, will we see him glorified? Finally, before we close, Genesis 11, don't turn to it. Genesis 11, it talks in Genesis 11, of course, about the Torah of Babel and how that man was one language. They were in one accord. They were united together to build this great tower. And God said, because they were united, because they were as one working together, 
God says nothing they have imagined they, would, they could do would be withheld from them. You can read that in Genesis 11. Nothing they have imagined to do can be withheld from them. If they're united and they're walking as one. So now we'll go down and we'll confuse their languages. And once their language is confused, they lost their unity because they couldn't communicate with each other. Language is very important, isn't it? You know, when you visit a foreign nation, you've got to work through an interpreter, as sometimes we do. You have to make sure your interpreter knows exactly what you want to say. You have to make sure that even the very scripture you're reading is the same meaning in his Bible as your Bible and the illustrations you use that they would understand it in that country because you want to get the message across. So you have to really, really work hard at that and to get a really good interpreter who can really do that is precious when you get that, who can flow with you. It's difficult. Now with modern communications, all you people have got smartphones and iPods and all the rest of it and you can, uh, uh, you can interpret things. You just click a button and it'll interpret Russian into English or Latvian into English or whatever. I have a wee thing. I was, our two Latvian friends down there, Evo and Julia, I have a thing in my iPod I got that can translate Latvian into English and English into Latvian. I can't pronounce it probably right, but I can see it. And it's wonderful when you can do that. Of course, they couldn't do it in those days. And they're all confused. Now, isn't it interesting in the day of Pentecost? When all those nations came together, from all over the world they came to the great feast of Pentecost. And God got hold of those 120 in the upper room and he filled them full of the Holy Ghost and fire. And they went out. And they didn't preach in their languages, by the way. Inside that room, they were praising God loudly and clearly in other languages that they hadn't learned. But those people outside heard them and they come running over. And then Peter went out and he preached, you men of Judea and Jerusalem. Because he didn't have the ability to speak to all those other languages. But they heard them in the upper room before he came out. They heard them praising God about the wonderful works of God. They heard it in their own languages whenever they were speaking in tongues in the upper room. But when Peter came out, he didn't know any of those languages. He had never learned those. He was just a fisherman. And they were amazed. But he addressed you men of Judea and Jerusalem because that's the only language he knew in English. It was not in English, but in, in Hebrew and Aramaic, Aramaic and all that. He spoke in that. And what a wonderful thing that was, that all of those languages, suddenly they heard all of their languages spoken and praising God together. And in that one moment, when those 120 were there, the Bible says, in one accord. And that was the key, in one accord. And then, in those 10 days, and then the Holy Ghost came when the Spirit had them in one accord on the day of Pentecost, when he came and 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ. What a time that was. As one flock, we are gathered together in John 10, 16. As one family, we dwell together, Psalm 133, 1. As one body, we are joined together, Ephesians 4, 16. 
As one temple, we are framed together, Ephesians 2.21. As one household, we are built together, Ephesians 19 and 20. As one kingdom, we are to strive together, Philippians 1.27. As one church, we have been raised up together and seated together in heavenly places in Ephesians 2. The power of unity. If we get united in love and get united in truth and get united in Christ, there is no limit to what he can do. There's no limit to what he can do. Amen? Let's pray.